0: This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're joined by Jason Fried, the co-founder and CEO of 37signals. 37signals is a software development company best known for creating Basecamp, an all-in-one product management platform, which has 20 million users since its inception, and hey, an email optimization platform. Jason is the co-author of the book, Rework, which provides a better, faster, easier way to succeed in business and remote, office not required. Jason has co-written several other books and is a regular speaker on 37Signal's podcast Rework. He's also a fellow at the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, and it's a community of 500 plus innovators, entrepreneurs, and investors committed to New Zealand as a base camp for global impact. So welcome, Jason.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So... You have been doing 37 signals now for over 23 years, I believe, which is a very long time.
1: Yeah, yeah, we started in 1999. So it's been a while, a couple decades. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. So it's still going. I think Basecamp is one of those things. You know, I remember when I was first getting into product management, we all looked at, you know, Basecamp and all the things that you were doing as a good guiding light for how we should be working. What have you seen be the success for staying in business for 23 years, continuing to put out innovative products like Hey was a huge success. What's your secret there?
1: Uh, there's no real secret. I'll tell you what we do. I don't know if this will work for anyone else, so like I can only share what like has worked for us. And the other thing to be honest about is you don't really ever know what really works. You don't really know why exactly. A lot of it's luck, a lot of it's timing, all that stuff, right? But we've always built things for ourselves first. And I think that's actually really helpful. It sounds kind of selfish, and it sort of is to some degree. But the thing about building something for yourself is that you know really, really well if it works. And so we were a web design firm. When we launched Basecamp, we were a web design firm. We needed a better way to manage our projects. We were using email, in-person meetings, phone calls, kind of a cobbled-together DIY system of whatever And we were just falling apart. It was fine like early on when we had a couple clients. Then you get five clients and you you track the stuff. Stuff falls through the cracks. You hire another two people. It's just a mess. So we had to solve that problem very clearly. And we knew exactly when we'd solved it. And we use Basecamp every day to run our entire business. We use Hey for all of our email. And so we know if the product works for us. And then we expect that there's other people out there like us. We don't need to find millions of them. We could find a few 10,000 of them. And if you have a a nice tight company, small company, you can do really, really, really well with tens of thousands of companies paying you or 100,000 companies paying you on a monthly basis, for example. So we're not trying to build something for everybody. We're not trying to imagine what other people need. We're not putting stuff out in front of people and saying, What do you think before we launch it? We build something we think is good, we put it out there, and then we adjust as we go. But I think fundamentally, when you build something for yourself, you give yourself a better chance. And then you just have to find more people like you versus the imaginary customer, the imaginary persona you think you're making things for. It's a lot harder that way. If you're going to say secret, whatever, whatever we want to call it, like that's our guiding line is us, which again, sounds selfish, but I think it's the right way to go.
0: I see that be something that's really good for entrepreneurs too. You know, teaching a lot of the students at Harvard, they're all trying startups And I think a lot of people try to build things that they don't have experience in the market with, or they've never been a part of it. And they see the opportunity, but I think it's really hard to understand the problems there, right? If you've never worked in that before, you don't know anybody who's worked in that industry. How do you keep, though, an eye on what the real problem is, right? And make sure that you're not just building things that are specific to you, but that do have more of a wide market approach.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good insight because... I can imagine a listener going, well, yeah, okay, you're building something for you, but what about everyone else? And the thing is, is that the kinds of products we make, everyone else has very similar problems. When you have a team of six or seven or eight people trying to work together, the problems are pretty similar. It's like, who's doing what? Who's working on what? What they say? Where, how do I find the thing I need? How do I get someone's attention when I need it, but not too much of their attention so I'm not distracting them? How do I communicate? How do we get on the same page? How do we keep feedback on the record so everyone knows where it is? And there's a yes and a no, and it's very clear, like, All these things are the same, no matter if you're in the construction industry, the design industry, if you're teaching, if you're a publisher, if you're a a nonprofit serving whatever, whoever, you're still a bunch of people trying to make some progress together. And so we keep our eye on that ball. How do we allow primarily smaller teams to make progress? How do we allow them to punch above their weight? how do we allow them to have more leverage and do things that they normally would need a lot more people to do? So that's the kind of thing that we're always thinking about. You know, that's why like, I, I don't really care about industries. I think industries are generally, for the most part, a false, false silos, unless you're building doing something very, very, very specific. So for example, in the construction industry, it's different than building software, there's longer time horizons, and you can't, there's some mistakes you cannot make in construction that you can make in software. And There's different things going on, but at the fundamental basic level, which is where we reside, it's about communication, about keeping things in track. It's about everyone sharing the same point of view and knowing where things are. It's that stuff. We don't get ahead of ourselves by trying to build industry-specific things. We build very generic, general, simple things at the base level, and that is the broadest, widest market, actually. It's always interesting because people, people try to get really specific and they want to kind of go up market and the biggest markets down market. It's at the base level of fundamentals, the fundamentals. That's what we're focused on. And those are relatively the same for pretty much everybody.
0: So in your 37 signals manifesto too, you do talk about the simplicity, which you're getting into as well. And you created a whole page called simplicity by design. What does that mean for you when you're thinking about building products? Like, how do you bake that in?
1: We start by thinking about what not to do, actually. We first have a sense of what we want to build, but then it's really, like, what are we not, what is this not going to be? That's a big part of it. And that starts at the company level. What kind of company do we not want to be? What kind of product do we not want to build? What kind of timeframes do we not want to work under? it's starting there which is a strange place i think to start perhaps but it helps us weed out all the things that we don't want to focus on and what we're left with is the core what we call the epicenter of the problem the feature of the product the company the whatever it is we get down to the absolute essence of something because we eliminate everything else because look if you don't do that the possibilities are endless which sounds exciting but it's also paralyzing and impossible you can't do it all. You can't do everything. So knowing what you're not going to do and being specific about that leaves only a few things left. And then you can really hammer down and, or whatever, uh, focus in on those things and get the essence right. That's what, when I think of simplicity, it, simplicity is not minimalism. It's not fewer things on the screen. It's like, what really matters? And how do we stop there, basically? Sometimes you do a little bit more, you make something a little bit more special because it's important or whatever, but fundamentally, what's the core? Get that right, and then stop yourself. The fundamental problem with software is software has no edges. It's not physical. Physical objects, we look at them, we all look at them and go, like, for example, here's here's this can of water I'm drinking, right? <laughs> if this thing was seven times the size, we'd all go, you, you can't, that's, how would you even drink that? Two hands, like, what, what do you even... It'd be a bad design. We, this is a good design. It fits in my hand. You know, it's the decent amount of liquid for me. You know, we would all look at this and go, okay, yeah, great. This is about what it should probably be. It could be plastic, It could be whatever, but software doesn't have that. So software has an unlimited palette of, and canvas of anything. So it tends to grow out of control because there's no natural limiting factor. There's no physical, there's no physics pushing back on you going, you can't hold it can that's seven times the size of that but with software you can kind of hide this there and hide this there and just it kind of can balloon so we try also tend to think of things as physical objects our software is physical objects what would this thing look like if it was a physical object it's not really like a we don't really go through that every time but it's it's a thought exercise it's a mental exercise that we do have in our heads like this is getting unwieldy if this was physical it wouldn't feel right so that's another way to kind of keep things tidy and tight i think
0: I like that I have not heard that perspective before but I I could totally see your point like physical products you can't just keep shoving stuff into you got to you got to pick and choose otherwise it's going to look crazy. So with that I feel like I definitely see us not doing that in software. So I, I really like this. You talk a lot in your book too and about in rework and in a lot of your writing about saying no, making sure that you're not building a lot of everything that the customer requests. And I think that's a really interesting take when a lot of people are thinking about hypergrowth and growth in their companies these days right we get these investors who want us to like keep building feature after feature and expand the TAM and you know like give us everything so that we can make a wider and wider and wider market and you have this approach that's kind of like the opposite of that it's like don't do that stay small stay profitable really focus when do you know it's time to expand your product or add a new feature, let's say, right? Is there is there danger maybe to being too small?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I mean, like Basecamp today is, is an incredibly powerful tool that has a lot more stuff in it than it had five years ago and 10 years ago. So it's expanding, it's getting better all the time, but it's still limited intentionally in different areas. How do you know? Uh, first of all, how do you know what to do? Where do the ideas come from? I mean, they come from all over. They come from us. They come from our customers. They come from the market. There's never a shortage of ideas. They're everywhere. Too many of them, and we have to say no to pretty much all of them because you just can't do all of them. So you just got to figure out what can we build that's going to benefit the most people. And that's why we don't really go into niche features for a specific industry or something. Because if I build something specifically for publishing. Uh, We have a lot of customers who are publishers, like books, magazines, newspapers, things like that. There's a lot, there's some workflows in the publishing world that are very, very specific to publishing. If we spend our time on that, we're just carving a very small niche there, which is not our niche. It's not our focus. And then that's not going to benefit pretty much any of our other customers. But you could build something that's a little bit more generic that allows people to set up certain workflows. And then show examples of how a publishing industry could use it and how the construction industry can use it and how a design firm can use it. And so you back out a little bit, like you have an idea, an idea might come from some industry and you hear this idea and you go, that's actually pretty clever and pretty interesting. And I can see how that would be useful for you. How could this be useful to more? How could this be more generalized, genericized almost? And that's the kind of thinking we tend to do. So we hear these ideas and we try to pull it back and go, can we make this broader Because to me, getting to your growth point, like growth is about, for us, it'd be more about broadening our base and not narrowing in on a specific industry. Now there's other companies who are focused very, very tightly on a specific industry and can build wonderful businesses in that industry. But they're typically coming from that industry. Like they're a construction firm who's like, we've got an idea for construction software. And they know that better than we'll ever know it. And so I'm not going to dabble in that world. I still want to get back to the generic what does a team of seven or eight people need to move forward and make progress? And so that's how we do that. Now, saying no to customers, we say no to us too. We say no to us all the time. It's, it's an equal or equal opportunity no's. <laughs> like, but, but what we do here, we hear things, we store them away. We think, I mean, we don't make a list. I don't believe in making lists of ideas. There's, they're too long. But when you keep hearing the same thing over and over, and it reminds you that there's something here that's kind of the hook we're looking for. Like there's something here, there's something here. And then you just kind of toss it around for a while. It could be six months, it could be two days. It just sort of, you toss it around until you hit on something that you think could be really useful. And then you decide maybe if you want to build that. So it's, it's a little bit more of an art. It's not a science for us. It's more about feel. It's also a matter of when. So I might hear a great idea now, but we're just not in the mood to do it because we're working on something else or we just worked on something really complicated and we don't want to add more complicated stuff to the product. So let's give it a rest for a while and work on some simpler things. It really is this, this churning collection of possibilities and you just sort of pick and choose as you go and you feel things out. And the other thing is, because we only work, we work on what we call six-week cycles. So we have a, we've, we've invented this system called Shape Up. Basecamp.com slash ShapeUp for those who are interested in learning about it. And ShapeUp is based on the six-week cycle, so we, work, we won't work on anything that takes longer than six weeks. A whole product might be a series of six-week cycles, but no feature will take more than six weeks. So we don't have to be so precious about what we choose to do because we're going to be able to pick another thing to do in six weeks. If you plan so far in advance, like we're going to lay out the roadmap for the next two years, you're just putting this huge amount of stress on yourself and indecision and You're locking yourself in to not being able to change. I'm not a big fan of that. So we're not really precious about the things we choose to do. If we get to it now, great. If we get to it in October, great. If we get to it until next February, fine, whatever. We'll get to it eventually when we feel like it's the right thing to do.
0: I feel like that six weeks just made a bunch of scrum people panic. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't care. <laughs>
0: but That's okay. That's yeah. okay. Right. Like they can panic about it, but I do kind of like your six weeks approach because I feel like it's meaty enough to get something fully baked out to a customer to try it and to get some meat stuck in it where they can actually like play with this big feature. And sometimes two weeks isn't, isn't long enough. Well, this for that. is
1: the key. This is so, so the scrum, like it's like two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, as long as it takes, but two weeks at a time. no, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> six weeks is the most anything can take for us. And we only have two people working on it one programmer, one designer. Two people have six weeks max. And most of the time, it's like a week or two or three. But these are complete ideas and they need to ship at the end of that. This idea that you keep working in two week sprints forever like, what, what's the point of that? I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I think it's a broken system. Um, I know it's popular, yeah. but I think it's broken. I think you need to put limits. And two weeks is not a limit if you can keep backing them up to more two weeks. Anyway, what's nice about six weeks is, like you said, it's enough time to really get something meaningful done. It's also put some pressure on because it's not unlimited time. It's almost over before it begins, which is good because sometimes you're working on something you don't really even like working on. So that's nice to know that, well, okay, so six weeks of something I'm not really thrilled about, fine. Sometimes you're working on stuff that just has to get done that no one wants to do, but you got to get it done. Usually, it's shorter amounts of time, but it can last than six weeks, and we get to make new decisions all the time about what we want to work on next. And we get to ship and move on, and ship and move on, and make progress that the customer sees. A lot of companies are making pseudo progress, I will call it, by working a lot, but they don't ship things. And I think you got to ship things to customers. So that, that's our point of view on it. Yeah.
0: How do you balance like the kind of the research approach, talking to people before you ship stuff. I know you you are a strong advocate for like, get things out, <laughs> yeah. like make sure you get that out. Wh- what kind of stuff do you do to explore the idea or like figure out what the solution should be before you start coding?
1: We have um, a few people here who are, well, first of all, our customer service team is constantly talking to customers. So we get about 500 emails a day from customers. Some are feature ideas. And these are also prospective customers. Some are feature ideas, some are questions, some are problems, some are bugs, whatever. right? So there's constant communication happening. We have a pretty good read on like what's going on. And then occasionally we do these interviews or we do one-on-one demos and we learn things because we show someone something and they go, oh, I didn't know that's how it worked. I thought it worked like this. And you go, oh, gosh, is this, I thought this was simple, but actually it's not. And you, you get these nuggets here and you get those nuggets there. Then there's just you know, these, these interviews where you really sit down and talk to someone for a while when we decide to do something, when we decide to like, do a project, we don't show customers while we're making it. We okay. do the best job we can and we ship it. We believe that's when you show customers. Put it out there for real. Let them use it for real. If it totally falls flat, we'll find out pretty quickly. Oftentimes it doesn't. Sometimes we need to tweak a little bit. Fine. I'd rather get real feedback from real customers using it for real in their own real environments than show them something half-baked and go, what do you think? Would you use this? I know those aren't the only two questions, but I don't like that. I don't think it's realistic, and I, I don't think you get good answers. Um, I think you get answers because you ask questions, but I don't think you get the real answers. There's a lot of thought that goes into deciding what to do. Again, some of this is based on customer interviews, some of it's based on other insights. Sometimes, we'll, again, we'll float an idea around our heads for a while. Sometimes it comes really quickly. Sometimes it's an internal frustration. We're like, "God, this—we just got to fix this, or we just got to build this, or why can't I do this?" And then you just do the best, you just do the best work you can. I mean, that, that's, you should have enough confidence and have enough skill if you're doing this for a living to feel like you have a pretty good take on what this product should do and how it should work and what this feature should, should do. We don't do things that we don't really understand. We do things that we think we understand well. We can get things wrong, of course, but our track record's pretty good and we're pretty comfortable with that. So I, th- and I think we would move a lot slower and not get that much better if we put everything in front of people. I don't think that would be beneficial ultimately over the long run. I think the product would be worse because it moves slower. And and the marginal improvements you might get ahead of time, maybe you get some. I don't think they're worth slowing things down like like they would. So we're not big into customer research during the building process. And I'm not that huge into it ahead of time. But we use it to get insights. And we use it for understanding. But after that, it's on us. We're the people who make the product to make the product.
0: I think... So totally understand your approach from an entrepreneurship standpoint. There's a lot of product managers out there or people working for companies where it's not a problem they deeply understand, right? Yes. It, they, they weren't in healthcare and they work for a healthcare company now. Do you think some of this still applies to them? Or what would you change if it was, let's say, an employee, not necessarily a founder an employee product manager coming into a company, working on tools that they don't
1: necessarily use every day? Yeah, obviously a smart question because my, my previous answer would not really apply in that case, right? Which is, yeah, I'll just, again, I'll jump back. to like If, if, if we had to make a healthcare thing, what I would do is, what I'd want to do is, I don't know if you can always do this, right? I'd want to sit in a doc. Let's, let's say it's a, I don't know, like a patient uh, medical records thing or something. I'd somehow want to sit in that doctor's office for a day, watching them interact with patients. I know this is, there's HIPAA, this is probably a bad example, doctors and patients, but.
0: It's actually not because I I worked on a a, a medical records. So So, so we did exactly what you're talking about. Okay, So
1: let's say I could like literally just sit with them for a day or a week and they would do things and I would take notes and I'd ask them why. And I'd say, why did it take you, I mean, I can't even think of my own experience. Why did it take uh, 45 seconds for you to type in this note with seven words? Like what, What? and I'm like clicking around here and they're clicking around here and they're mm-hmm. clicking like, what is going on there? And then I'd say like, what frustrates you about your job? I would ask very specific questions around this, but I would observe. And I would get a really good, underst- I'd try to get a really good feel and understanding of their day-to-day and really understand not the software they use today, but what are they trying to do? I'd fill my mind with this. I feel like I have a sense of what the major core problems are. And then I would go build something I would not show it to them while I'm in the middle of it. I would make something quickly, though, in a few weeks, like a basic version of this, perhaps, and maybe walk them through that. But it's not an MVP. It's, it's not, I don't like the MVP thing. It's not that. It's more like, here's th- everything I saw you doing. Here's a faster way to do it. Now, what can't you do in this that you wish you could do? I'd ask questions like that, or where would this frustrate you? What's missing from this? that you really, really, really use. So I would, I would have to go back and forth, I think, with people at that point. But what I wouldn't want to do is I wouldn't want to show them half-baked stuff in progress. I'd always want to show a complete idea, just maybe a very simple version of it. That's probably how I would approach that. And this is what we did. when We used to do client work way before we did software for ourselves. We were a web design firm and I would do things like this. I can only tell you, I don't like working that way, but I know a lot of people have to. Partially what I'm going to tell you is, What I just said is probably how I'd approach it. But I also think that my advice is not very good here because I don't do this kind of work. And I think that whoever's listening is better off talking to someone who does that kind of work specifically. But what I would caution against is asking too many questions in the middle of building. Ask the questions before. Get a good model. Get a good understanding of the problem you're out there to solve. And then go to work and build the thing. And don't Keep asking questions while you're building. Build something that works that you can show someone. Don't give them mock-ups. Don't give them wireframes. Don't give them things they can't use. Make something that, they, now, again, in the doctor situation, this is tricky because you've got HIPAA and you, they're not really going to use this thing, so it's maybe not the best example, but you've got to make something that works so people can actually use it. That's where they're going to give you real feedback that matters. I think looking at pictures doesn't teach you anything. People don't know how to respond to that. People don't know how to talk about something they can't use. They're not really good at it. And so they'll give you the answers, but they're not really the, the real ones. That's my guess. And remembering 20 some odd years ago when I used to do this, that's how I would do it. Yeah. Like, actually, I'll give you a quick example. We did this intranet for a credit union in Madison, Wisconsin, I don't know, 25 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we went up there to Madison and we sat with them and looked at what they use today and just watched them use it and talked and go, why, why Why does it take so long? Or what frustrate? again, these questions like, what's in your way? Why is this so hard? Is it not hard? Or what part of this do you like? Or how does technology get in your way? Why? Why are things, anyway, we sat with them for a few days and really absorbed this stuff. Then we went off and built something for them. And then we showed them something that was real and worked. And then we iterated from there. So I consider that basically shipping. We shipped something and then we iterated from there, which is what we do today.
0: Facilitation is a skill I see as a fundamental difference between good and great product managers, yet it's often overlooked. Great product managers focus on guiding clear conversations and steering stakeholders to the best outcomes. You can develop these facilitation superpowers in Voltage Control's facilitation certification program. Ready to unlock your greatness? Apply today at voltagecontrol.com product. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. I do think what you're honing in on, though, is really interesting. And I think it's a big shift from maybe 15 years ago in product management and the way that we built software to now. It's gotten faster, I think, to build software. And the tools that we have today are light years ahead of what we used to have 15 years ago. Yes. And, you know, it used to be all about let's do prototypes, let's do this. And I still think prototypes are a valuable tool, in my opinion, for a lot of things. But what I've realized too is that in a lot of places we can actually build software sometimes faster than we can build a prototype. So I I do kind of like your idea of let's just get it out there. If you can scope it down into something that takes six weeks to build and test once you have like very good validation from a customer research standpoint of like, hey, let's go this way. But I could see also in some really large organizations, it may not take six weeks to build something because of the systems they have or the old school tooling they have or the, the code that they're actually creating. But I think in companies that can move quickly like that, sometimes it does make sense to actually build out a good first version in software rather than you know fight some different tools if you don't have like a ton of things on the line or a ton of dependencies.
1: Yes, and the other reason why I think this is really important and why we don't really work in, we don't really ever build prototypes that don't work. And people say, well, my Figma prototype works because I can click around. That's not really, it's not storing data behind the scenes. It's not really a real thing. Nothing against Figma. Figma is a great tool. I'm just saying like, we build stuff in, in Rails and HTML and CSS and Java. We build the real thing. And the reason why is, why spend six weeks building a prototype that you have to throw out and start over again? It, it seems so inefficient to do it that way, frankly. I'd rather build in the real medium and then iterate from there with the real code base and the real design and actually like, get a head start on this real thing or have this, this real thing turn into a realer thing versus going in one direction, trying to like perfect something that you're literally going to throw away and then have to recreate. Making the same thing twice, not into it. I think it's a huge waste of time and I think it's a problem. So when we, when we show anything to each other, it's a cheapo, terrible sketch. We use fat sharpie markers or like a sketching thing on the iPad that's like not about detail. It's like, I don't mind throwing that away because it took six seconds to draw this thing. But I don't want to spend six weeks on something I'm gonna throw away just to recreate the same thing in a different technology. It all depends on what you're used to and the kind of organization you build, but these things layer up and matter. And the closer you can get to making the real thing, looking at the real thing, using the real thing, the faster you're going to move, the more progress you can make and the fewer people you need, which all ties back to like building a profitable business, being sustainable, being around for a long time, not needing a huge massive staff just to do basic things like all does relate to each other. And I don't think you can look at these things individually. They are all one point of view and method to make progress as a company.
0: In that case, too, like when you're talking about the design and not doing the prototypes, are your designers at 37signals also front-end engineers? Like, Do they build the HTML and the code and everything, or, or how does that work?
1: Yes. So every designer here writes their own HTML, their own CSS. They can make their way around Rails, which is our primary platform. They can do their own JavaScript for the most part, and that's critical. That's why there's only two people working on any given feature. Mm-hmm. we built a kanban like thing in base camp called card table two people in six weeks actually we did two that took two full cycles so that's about 12 weeks total but two people one designer one programmer and they work together it's not a designer's not delivering a set of designs to somebody who then chunks it up makes it whatever and they go away and do the next thing. The designer and the programmer work together every single day hand in hand not literally but you know like Passing stuff yeah. back and forth in GitHub or whatever, and committing code and working in things and building stuff together and making tweaks and making adjustments for building as they go. But yes, we don't have any front end engineers as a separate role from design, and the programmers here do like all the back end stuff, Rails, all the database work, whatever else needs to go behind the scenes is is, is on the programmer side.
0: Cool. Yep. Yeah. So then that definitely keeps your team small. And I think that gets back to what you were talking about as well with the profitable company. And I want to talk about that a little bit too, because right now, you know, with this economy that we're seeing, I hate to say that because everybody's like, Oh, with this economy, such a funny like phrase that you hear every day, but but it's true. Like, you know, money's not as plentiful as it used to be. A lot of companies took a bunch of venture capitalist money and now they got to, they got to stretch it because that fundraise isn't coming around for, another quite a few years. And those that want to start a company now have to think about becoming profitable fast. And that's something that you talk about a lot, and really what you did with all of your companies in 37 Signals. So can you talk a little bit about how you designed for profitability and how you lead your company with that in mind?
1: Yeah, so we, we the primary way is initially to start small, you know, when we first launched the company, there was four of us, and there was like, I don't know, six of us for a couple of years. And then we would hire very, very slowly, only as we needed people. So we have a philosophy, hire when it hurts. Don't hire in anticipation of pain. Don't hire because you think you're going to need six more people. When you need, when you needed six people three months ago, hire when it hurts. So that's the first thing because payroll is a huge the primary cost center, really, that marketing, which we didn't, we have never really done much of. We've been recently beginning to explore that. But over the 20 some odd years, we've spent essentially nothing, all things considered on it. So, so it's salaries. And, uh, you know, hardware is cheap and whatever, and software is cheap. So salaries are expensive. So small teams, which forced us to learn how to work with small teams and get a lot out of small teams and actually see the advantages of them. They're hugely advantageous direct communication. We don't need project managers because there's just two people working on something. So we have a product strategy product owner who looks over the entirety of all of Basecamp and all of hay and can direct six or seven teams working on things because the teams are so small and so direct and everything's very clear. It's just so much simpler. The thing is we did a lot of the jobs ourselves. So I I ran customer service myself for the first handful of years while also designing Basecamp, you know, and 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 being the primary designer on the product. I answer all the customer emails. Like you just can make that pain go away very fast. Just hire a bunch of customers. But I want to feel it. I want to know it. I want to understand it. And I'd rather not spend the money initially, right? So it's this, it's this initial mindset you need to go into things with, which is the problem a lot of companies have when they don't have that mindset. And they get a bunch of outside money and they grow big, 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 big. And then they've got to, the money, the, the spigot turns off. And now they've got to flip into profitability mode. Like they don't know how. Just like if someone threw me a, a bass guitar and like play it, I'm like, I don't know how to play this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, or just a trombone. Like, uh, okay, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, that's what it's like to run a company unprofitably, kind of a sloppy company, in my opinion, when you're just like blowing tons of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of our competitors are literally losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year, collectively losing billions of dollars. Like, what are you doing? How is this even possible? How can you lose this much money given the number of customers that you have? I just do not understand that. Primarily, it's because they're avoiding too many people and they're blowing a bunch of money on marketing. But we just had this mindset early on. We're going to be independent. We're going to be self-funded. And when you spend your own money, you're more careful with it. And the other thing is that profitability buys you time. So it's like, you can't buy time. You actually can buy time. That's what profits are for. As long as we make a buck more than than we spend in a given year, all things considered, all things paid for, we can stay around. And have another shot the next year at doing something new, something better, servicing our customers, whatever it is. So I just think profitability, profit is like, it's this universal, wonderful thing because it allows you to stick around. It allows you to be independent. It allows you to take chances. It allows you to do what you want. I don't have to ask anyone's permission for the decisions we make. I don't have to ask anyone's permission to launch a new email service like, hey, no one would have, I guarantee you, if we had investors, they'd be like, you are absolutely insane to battle against Gmail. It makes no sense. And I'd be like, you're right, it makes no sense, which is why we're going to do it, because we have an idea <laughs> that we think is good. And I don't have to give people's permission. So our motto kind of is like, do things people wouldn't give us permission to do. Kind of going a little bit all over the place. But, but fundamentally, we think about costs a lot. I think a lot of companies, they don't think about costs, they think about revenue, they think about raising money, they don't think about costs. And it's a hard, again, it's a hard mindset to shift into when you need to. It'd be a lot easier for us to shift into the opposite mindset, which is like, if someone's going to give us a hundred million bucks, like spend, 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 spending, isn't something you need to practice as much making more money than you spend is. And if you're not practiced and then the spigot goes away, you're in trouble. So maybe it's this Midwestern mindset. I'm from Chicago. Like my parents always taught me this, like, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't take risks that can put you out of business or whatever. Like we never risk the company, but we will risk, we'll, we'll take risks, but I won't put ourselves at risk in that way. So I don't know. Every business knows this. And mm-hmm. pretty much every business has to live this. You go down, take your clothes to the dry cleaner in the corner. They're not blowing money. They're not like, I'll clean your shirt for 30 cents, but it costs them a dollar fifty to do it. They're not going to do that. They're smart business people who know they need to put food on the table. They need to make more money than they spend. Same thing with the pizza shop. Same thing with the convenience store and the bodega, whatever it is like, most business runs this way. So it's almost kind of ridiculous. I feel like in my industry that I have to talk about this, although I'm happy to, but it's so silly that I have to explain in a sense, like what it means to make more money than you spend and why it's important.
0: I love you talking about this yeah. too, because <laughs> I, I think it's really important. And I, I think you're right. Yeah. I have seen so many companies just not care about the cost, right? And now they do have to care about the cost. So at a left field, all of a sudden, this company that only cared about the top line is like, oh, I got to look at my cost. And they realize how crazy it is. It's like out of control. And for the longest time, I think investors have been, especially with a SaaS company, right? They only value it off the top line growth unless it's in decline. And then they go back to EBITDA. And we did things that we did not scale really well in many of those companies. So they're they're not super sustainable and i think with the vc model in a lot of places it's like i don't care just get that top line up there so i can value it at a certain number and then i'm going to sell it to somebody else and the cost is their problem at the end of the day right, right. like it'll exit and I'll, I'll just pass the buck also like you know I, I was raised in a family of like bar and restaurant owners if it wasn't profitable we didn't make money that year sure. so that's how i've always looked at you know running my business as well Is just like we need to keep making money and i gotta worry about cost because i don't have outside funding And it's so different than I think the way that investors and SaaS models kind of worked with the raising the money approach. And I've been told by some investors too, like, like I I don't build software like 37 signals, but like with my online school and stuff, they're going, oh, don't worry about the costs. Like you're too scared, Melissa, just like throw money at the problem, just grow, grow, grow at all costs. And it doesn't make a profitable business when you think about that, right? And I hear this word too, I think from investors, that's really interesting. And I want to hear your approach on this too. They always call these smaller profitable business like lifestyle businesses, right? Which means they're not going to be the billion dollar darlings that are like exiting from the SaaS world. So I'm curious, like your approach is very much the profitability model as well. And when you think about 37 signals and this kind of like juxtaposition with investors as a lifestyle business, like what's your end goal? How how do you want to grow it? How do you think about like, this is my business, this is my life's work?
1: Yeah. Well, the whole lifestyle business thing, yeah, it's usually used as a pejorative. And yeah. But you know, the funny thing is is like people who take VC money, they're doing it for a lifestyle too. Everyone you work for a lifestyle, like great. Good. So okay, great. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> so the but the pejorative sense is that you're never going to be as big as you could or you're going to you know, you're leaving money on the table and look at the opportunities that you could you could dominate an industry whatever. Like maybe all that's true. I don't care. I'm not interested in domination. Uh, I'm not interested in, in in controlling an industry. My interest has always been and still is just to build really wonderful things that we use that I like to use. That take crafting into consideration. Um, I get to work with wonderful, smart, incredibly talented people every day to make things. We get to build a sustainable business that's profitable. I take money out of this business every year too. So we're an LLC. So whatever profits left over at the end goes to the owners after we pay all the bills, right? And salaries and bonuses and all that stuff. And profit sharing is included in that as well. So We've built a really wonderful lifestyle off this business and we're able to, to generate profit and we still get to make great stuff that we want to make. Like, I like to make things. And to me, being an entrepreneur is actually about being independent. This is going to be a controversial take, but well, okay, let me, let me put you this. You
0: first. can say it, go for I'm it. I'm going to say it, but <laughs>
1: I don't even like the word entrepreneur, even though I use it. Like, If you are dependent upon an outside source for money, not revenue. Revenue is different. Revenue is like from your customers. But if you're dependent on an outside source, then you have a job and you work for that other person, that other fund, that other company. Are you really running your own business at that point? I'm not so sure. I work for my customers. That's to me, and we're independent. And I think that is to me, the true entrepreneurship, like the bar and restaurants that, that your, your folks or family own, like They work for their customers and they probably work for the bank. They probably had a bank loan. And, you know, there's some of that too, of course, or maybe they didn't, I don't know. But most small businesses like have some sort of bank relationship or a line of credit or something. Right. But it's different because in that case, they're not expecting an exit. They, they, they're not working towards something for someone else. Like they're going to pay their loan back. Yeah. With interest and all that, of course, that's totally cool. But there's still a sense of independence there. And why I do this and why we keep doing this is because I love the ability to be independent and to make things out of nothing, to make wonderful products for wonderful customers, work with wonderful people and not have to play a game for someone else who's extraordinarily wealthy above me, who I need to do something for so they can be even wealthier. It doesn't interest me. That's it for me. So that's, that's what I would say. I should write something up about this. Like if you're dependent on someone else, you're working for them. I mean, you really kind of are. And By the way, there are wonderful businesses that are only VC style businesses that would never have become what they became without that. So it's not that like investment, and I put some money into a few things. It's not that investment's a bad thing. It's just that I think people who are taking the investment need to really truly understand what they're getting themselves into. That's what I think is often lost. They're not sure about what they're getting themselves into. They're just getting themselves into this because it sounds amazing. Someone's giving me 20 million bucks. I'm in. Yeah. what does it cost you to get 20 million bucks? It costs you a lot of freedom and independence and flexibility, actually. And the last thing I'll say about this is that when you take outside money, there's really only two outcomes. There's like going out of business or going huge, getting big. A lot of companies I think would be better off being smaller, medium sized whatever, but they, they're not allowed to be if they take outside money. That's true. I would like, I like optionality. Like why, why not find where you're going to land and land there and land in a great place? Like why does it have to be all or nothing? I, I don't like the all or nothing model. So that's, what's nice about being independent as well. You can kind of find your place, settle in and do your thing.
0: What I like about what you're saying too, is that it's an alternative mode of being an entrepreneur, right? For people, even in software, Who think that the only way is to raise money and i run into those people every single day doing startups right and like you said there are these mom and pop shops there's a laundromat down the street who's not thinking about raising venture capitalist money (laughs) they weren't like oh this is the only way i could start a business they went let me go start a laundromat and they went to the bank and they got a loan and they did that but i find that people now think that the only way they can start a company is to go get venture capitalist money and they work towards that exit because they think one year, sometimes it's 10, 15 years down the road, right? They're going to come away with, let's say $50 million from that. But what they're not thinking about is like, how do I make money for the next 15 years to and make a steady, profitable business? Like you said, to take money out of the business, because it's all yours. It's, it's something that you own. It's something that you grow. And I really like the way that you present that. And I think what happens with the people who think about the only mode of building businesses as the one to take venture capitalist money is I also see them burn out because they're like killing themselves to rush into getting this growth that was a number that we picked out because we need to give our investors back that money so you do talk a lot about you know sustainability from a effort perspective too and something that you enjoy and not burning out you know what's your opinion on that and and how have you balanced that with running your own business and making sure that you don't burn out over the last 23 years?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, all of this stuff is hard. So like running a business in any way is, is a real challenge and the odds are against you. You're probably not, it's probably not going to work. Like that's just the, those are the odds. So all this stuff's hard. So then it's like, why, why make it even harder? And I, to me, like raising money and living under someone else's expectations actually makes it harder. Not easier. You can't run at the right pace. You've got to sprint, you've got to speed, you've got to go somewhere big or go home, basically. Not, not for me. So I think kind of optionality and trying to reduce the amount of stress you're under is a huge part of reducing burnout and maintaining sustainability. Like there's stressful times. Obviously, there's all sorts of moments in any business where it's hard, and all that's true. But I feel like you have a little bit more control over it when it's your own stress that you're creating in your own situation you're dealing with versus like the stress that's coming from above, pushing you down. That is a different kind of stress. Performing for others is a different kind of stress than performing for yourself. And you're going to maybe put on yourself anyway, but doubling up is tough. So one of the things we do here is, um, first of all, we work 40 hour weeks. So we, we don't work. I mean, look, sometimes it's 42 hours. Sometimes it could be 45 hours. Other times it's 36 hours. Like, but about 40 hours a week. And in the summer, we work 40 weeks, so about 32 hour weeks. So that helps, first of all, starting baseline. Like, we want you to have a life outside of work. I am not entitled to any of your time after 5 p.m. I mean, people work different times, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, when you leave, you're done. We're not pulling you back into work unless there's an emergency, which should almost never happen. I don't own your weekends. I'm not expecting you to do anything on Sunday afternoon before Monday. Like, that's your time. Life is this, work is this, and there's clear boundaries, okay, as, as clear as they can be. So it's, of course, up to each individual person to figure out how to really manage that. But that's, well, we're, that's our expectation of people. 40 hours is plenty. So that's number one. We also do paid sabbaticals for everybody every three years in every position. So you get a 30-day sabbatical. We might extend that to six weeks. We'll have to see, got to figure that out. But we've been doing this for years. So every three years, you earn an extra month off a year paid that's helpful for people, really helps them sort of recharge. We have a lot of people who've been here for a long, long time. Just had someone celebrate their 14th anniversary a few weeks ago, 15th anniversary a few months ago. People have been here for a long time. And part of that is, again, 40-hour weeks working with great people, not putting unnecessary stress and growth targets. We have no goals and no targets. We don't have anything people are trying to strive for other than to make do the best work they can. That just helps to bring a certain degree of calm and we don't work in real time all the time. A lot of our work is asynchronous. So people have their own data themselves. They don't have a lot of meetings. There's nothing where people like, don't have the time to get the work done they need to do. All of those things compound to create a place where you can work for a long period of time and not be burned out. But you can also get a little burned out from time to time. And So occasionally, if someone's been here for a long time and they need three months off, or they need four months off, like we'll grant that. Go ahead. Take some extra time off get recharged. We've done this a few times for people. and It's been very helpful. I just took my first, first sabbatical, which is embarrassing. I should have taken more <laughs> of this, but a few months ago I took seven weeks off. So I kind of ganged two of them together essentially, since I hadn't taken a single one in 20 years. I um, mean, that oh was really God. refreshing and wonderful too. I think it's all these individual techniques and also giving people a lot of agency and freedom over their work. And, and there's just, there's not this feeling. I think the worst feeling is downward pressure So if it's from investors or from managers or from ownership or whoever it is pushing down on people, we try not to do that at all. So you don't feel that. You're going to feel your own expectations and your teams, but there's not this, "Mm." that's where I think people get squeezed into burnout. So we try to stay away from that as best we can.
0: That's definitely some really good tips to make sure that everything is sustainable and you can keep making profitable businesses. So thank you so much, Jason, for joining us on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you or 37signals, where can they go?
1: 37signals.com. So 37signals.com. I've got an email newsletter. If you go to world.hey.com slash Jason, you can follow me there. Find me on LinkedIn at my name on Twitter at my name. I don't know uh, that those, those are kind of the places. <laughs> we also have a podcast called the rework podcast, which, which we talk about these things weekly. So similar topics. So that's something you can check out rework.fm and I don't know anywhere else. You, you I might be, that's, that's where you'll find me, I guess.
0: Great. And we will put all of those links at the end of our show notes. And for those of you listening, if you enjoyed the product thinking podcast, please go to Spotify or Apple and leave us a review. Make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'll be back with another Dear Melissa segment next Wednesday. We'll see you then. Thanks.